Got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3. And we're going to read the first seven verses. Likewise, wives. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? <laughs> Be subject to your own husbands. Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah, that's right. Preach it. Preach it. You know, the, the worst part about this, this talk this morning is that I know some of your wives listen to these, so I'm going to get flack, but that's okay. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be ex external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, now we don't need to read this part. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray over this. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and we do need you to help us understand this passage because uh, I'm convinced that it's been abused over the years and misunderstood and misconstrued and uh, Father, we... We just want to know what you would have us do with this information. Um, as those in the room who are married and have wives, those who are no longer married and have lost our wives, those who've never had a wife, Lord, what do we do with this and how do we apply it to our lives as men living in this day and age and at this time? Father, I pray that you would um, bless this, the time right now as we teach and as we learn and also the time around the tables in just a few minutes as we discuss that it would be uh, applicable and life-changing, and that, Father, we could walk away understanding even more the need to live goodly, God, and holy lives in every area of our life in order that we might impact the world around us. We love you, and we thank you for this morning, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dig into this this morning, and you know, just in case you think this isn't going to apply to you because you're not a woman or you don't have a wife, you're going to be sorely wrong. And uh, because the way I, I've decided to approach this passage is it's, it's really, even though six of the verses are directed at wives uh, and only one are directed at husbands, um, I'm going to direct it all at us as men because this is a men's study. And so really what, what I get out of this is it's a call to you and I to live selflessly. Again, even though six of the verses are talking to women, wives in particular, there is at least one verse talking to husbands, and the, and the message is one about selflessness, how to live your life as a believer selflessly. Now, remember the context. What we looked at last week is this idea of how do you subject yourselves to the governing authorities, to governors, to emperors? Uh, how do you submit, come under their authority as unto the Lord? And he's going to keep that going, and now he's gone from the civil kind of arena the public arena, and he's come right into the house. 
And he's going to say, okay, what does this look like in the home? What does it mean to live godly, influentially in the home? And he's going to talk directly to wives. Now, again, it's important to keep the context of he's writing to people living in a day and age when they were under uh, persecution for their faith. He's writing to people who are living in Asia Minor, uh, the area that's now modern Turkey. Um, They were mostly pagans who had become believers in Jesus Christ, probably lost their jobs, may have lost a lot of their family relationships because they had walked away from their pagan religion into Christianity. They're, They're living in an environment that is not conducive to living the Christian life. It's actually hostile. And so he's telling them, how do you continue to live godly in the midst of ungodliness? Much like what we find ourselves living in today. It's going to get increasingly more difficult, I believe, for us to live the Christian life um, the way God intends us to live it, living godly, living righteously. So it's a call for you and I to live selflessly. And the key verse that we saw last week was verse 12. And it kind of sets the tone even for this week. He says, keep your conduct, your behavior, how you live your life, your everyday life among the Gentiles, the lost, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as you live your life in the, the, the world, the lost world, surrounded by lost individuals, people who don't believe what you believe and don't believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, as you live that way and they accuse you and they condemn you and they turn against you, they can look at your good deeds, your godly behavior, even in the midst of persecution, whether it's the governor, whether it's the emperor, whether it's your boss, and see something different about you. And ultimately do what? Glorify God in the day of visitation so that your conduct can actually have an evangelistic effect on the lives of the lost around you, depending on how you live your life. So again, now he's going to take it into the home, and it's, it's really what I think is important in understanding these particular seven verses is the, the context of your life as a Christian intersecting with the world, the lost world. You can't forget that that's what he's talking about. And so when you go out the doors today and you go to work, I don't know where you work, but more than likely there are probably more unbelievers than believers unless you happen to work like I do in a church. You're going to work around unbelievers. Your life intersects every day with unbelievers. What should that look like? How should your life influence those individuals? Last week we talked about the government. We talked about the workplace. And now we're going to talk about marriage. But in all cases, it's where the godless often exist. Now, we know, we don't have any problem saying the godless exist in government, right? They're all over the place. There are Christians there as well, but we know there are godless people in government. People are attracted sometimes to government for the wrong reasons. We know that in the workplace, there are godless people. You may be convinced that your boss is godless, um, But even in marriage, in this context, in this day, he's writing to people, many of whom have come to faith in Christ and their spouse has not. So he's going to talk to wives in particular that have husbands who have not come to faith in Christ. So their marriage is the place of intersection, potential conflict. And he's going to give them advice. How do you as a believer in Jesus Christ enter 
act with your unbelieving husband? What should that look like? Now, you can easily imagine that if a woman came to faith in Christ and her husband was lost, he was a pagan, her first response might be to, well, I need to leave him because he's not a believer. I need to find me a believing husband. Um, he, he's got no interest in the things of God, so I'm going to leave him and become free from him because I'm free in Christ. Well, Peter's going to speak directly against that. Same thing is true that there were men whose wives weren't believers. Now, culturally, normally what would happen is the house went the way the husband went. So if a husband worshiped a certain God, the wife worshiped that God. She just followed suit because that was the nature of that environment. So it's less likely, and one of the reasons I think there's six verses for the wives and only one for the husband is, in most cases, the wife just followed the husband's spiritual leanings. But the husband most certainly didn't follow the wife's spiritual leanings. That's not the way that culture worked. And so he's going to spend six verses talking to these women about what do you do? How do you live godly when you've got an ungodly husband? And just like last week, here's the bottom line. Your life, my life, should glorify God in every circumstance in which you live. Every relationship that you have, you should glorify God, and your life should cause others to glorify God. Now think about that, that the way you live your life, your good deeds, your good behavior... Remember last week we said your good deeds is really godliness. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is God's will, your holiness. Peter said last week, this is God's will that you do good. And doing good is submitting to the authorities. Doing good is submitting to that unfair, unjust boss. Doing good this week is submitting to that potentially ungodly pagan husband who doesn't even approve of your faith. What, what do we do in those circumstances? So it's this idea of your faith intersecting with a lost society, and it happens every day in so many ways. So what does he say to these ladies? Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So what's he saying? Wives, be subject to your husband, your lost husband, I think is what he's referencing, so that even some, if some do not obey the Lord, in other words, if they don't come to faith in Christ, they may be won eventually through what? Your good conduct, your behavior, your deportment your good deeds, submitting as unto the Lord, they might be one when they see what? Your respectful and pure conduct. So his emphasis is, if some do not obey the words, if some of these husbands married to these women who've come to faith in Christ don't obey the word, they may be one without a word. Everything's pointing to behavior, conduct, how you live your life. And he particularly says pure conduct. And we've looked at this word before, but he keeps using it over and over again. It's the manner of life, how you live your life, your everyday conduct, your behavior in every phase of your life. So he tells these women, when you go home, how do you live? You know, you come to church, you live one way, you gather. And I can imagine some of these women found the church, the gathered church, the meeting place, a wonderful place to be because they were free there. They were around other believers who thought like them. And the idea of going back home to their lost husband 
was not an attractive picture, but he says, no, I want you to go home and I want you to influence them with your pure conduct, your behavior. And as we've said before, your behavior, my behavior has consequences, both good and bad. But as believers, it should have good consequences, good influence. And doing good can produce good results. Doing godly things, doing what God would have you to do. So it was interesting yesterday, um, I took my wife to the airport. She's, she's on her way to Ethiopia for two weeks. So I was coming back from the airport. We used her car. Of course, it was on empty. Um, wives, be subject to your husbands. Um, I pull up to the gas station, and I pull up to the pump. The first pump wouldn't work, so I pulled around to another pump. I get out of the car, and it says $20 prepaid. It was like hitting the lottery. I was like, this, man, this is great. I get $20 free gas. So I start pumping my car, and it's, it's pumping. I'm like, this is, man, this is great. And then that little voice in your head goes, this is a mistake that someone has made in there. And then the other voice said, you know, they charge way too much for their gas. <laughs> and you have more than paid for gas over the years, so this is your little reward. And then the other voice said, somebody's going to end up having to pay for this because they put that on the wrong pump. And then the other voice said, they'll get over it. And so I was having this debate going back and forth and, and I finished and I put the thing in and, I, and everything in me wanted to just get back in the car and just go on my merry way. But I said, no, nah, I can't do that. So I went in and there's this, these two people, older man, younger girl, and she's frantic. You can just tell something's not, not good. And uh, she says, can I help you? I said, yeah, I pulled up to pump 11 and it had $20 prepaid on it and I didn't ask for $20 prepaid, and I handed her the 20, and she goes, oh, thank you so much. And the older gentleman goes, see, I told you somebody would do the right thing. <laughs> see, those are those moments of intersection, right? And I felt so much better when I walked out, even though I lost my lottery, because I did the right thing. Now, that's a small picture, but that's a lot of what he's talking about. That young girl would have had to probably come out of pocket 20 bucks for a mistake that she made, a legitimate mistake. She put that on the wrong pump. Every day we have the opportunity to do good and to affect the lives of others. And it's about selflessness, not thinking more highly of yourself, not thinking about yourself at all for the most part. It's not about you. It's how can you impact the world around you? So he talks to these women, it's about your conduct. How do you live your life? When you go home into that lost environment where you've got a lost husband, how do you conduct yourselves? Are you going to berate this guy with your faith? Are you going to nag him to go to church? Are you, how are you going to handle yourself in that environment? Now, don't, don't get hung up and he's just talking to women. What if you have a lost wife? What are you going to do in that environment? And I think that's what verse 7 is really all about. How do you handle these relationships it's all about conduct. So think about this. He's talking to women, going back into their homes. They have lost husbands. What do you think he's going to tell them to do? Just logically. If you had a woman come, and I've had this happen where a woman comes into my office, she's a believer, and she's got a lost husband who does not approve of her being at church, doesn't like her bringing her kids to church. What is your counsel to that woman? Well, just tell him to butt a stump. You're just bringing those kids, get on in here. If he doesn't like it, lump it. 
What do you tell this woman? What's Peter going to tell these women? What kind of a conduct is he going to tell them to take back into that environment with a lost husband? And this is where it gets really interesting. He says, do not let your adorning be external. Now, I read that and I go, what kind of counsel is that? Why are you suddenly talking about their appearance? I have never given this counsel to anybody, and yet it's biblical. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Why in the world does he go here? Why does he make this the emphasis to these women? If you're saved, your husband is lost, your conduct could win him to the Lord. So when you go home, don't let your adorning be external. What's he trying to tell them? And what's he trying to tell us? I love the message paraphrase. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. What do all those things describe? The outward image that women, and sadly, men too, worry about to influence others. How we appear, how we're perceived, So he says, don't worry about those things, but it's not really a passage about how women dress. It's not a fashion critique by Peter. And yet there are some denominations who have taken this passage and basically said, women can't wear jewelry. Women can't cut their hair. Women can't wear certain kinds of clothes. Women can't. That's not what this passage is all about. I don't think that's what this passage is about at all. I think this passage is about What are you going to do to try to influence the behavior of your husband? Remember, it all boils down to what is good conduct for a Christian. And good conduct, Paul says, has nothing to do with the externals of how you wear your hair, what kind of lipstick do you wear, how you look. It's what are you like on the inside? What do you appear like on the inside? So what's the problem? This is the key word to these verses. It's the word adorning, and here's what it means in the Greek. It's the same word for the universe, which is really kind of interesting. It has to do with the stars. It has to do with the ornament of the heavens, how everything's put out there by God. Everything has a place. It's how God adorned the universe, how he put everything where it belongs. And he says, don't let your outward adornment be the focus So what's he telling them? It has to do with the arrangement of things in a harmonious way. Again, what's what's their natural tendency is going to be, if I want to influence my husband, I know my husband, and he's influenced by how I look, and so I'm going to look a certain way. I'm going to appear a certain way to him so that I might influence him. But what does Peter say? No, it's your heart which then influences your character, which then influences your behavior. That's what's going to change your husband, not the way you look. It's not the way you appear. See, guys, here's what I know. I've seen plenty of marriages where guys have left their wives and they have had an affair with the woman half as attractive as their current wife. And I look at that and go, what is wrong with you? What's the problem? It has nothing to do necessarily with what the woman looks like. It has to do with what he wants from her. He may get more attention from the other woman. He, she may make him feel really special, and she normally does that because she doesn't know anything about him, and his wife knows everything about him, and she's 
fallen out of love with all of that a long time ago. See, it's not about the outward. It's not about how you appear. It's not about what you wear. It's not about your clothes. And why this is so important, guys, and this is going to get close to home as we dig into this, is that you, as a male, influence this decision and this process that goes on in your wife's brain or your girlfriend's brain or your daughter's brain. Because at the end of the day for Peter, it's about the gospel. It's about the impact of the gospel on the lives of others and how we live our lives, the conduct of our lives, the inward character of our lives. It's about godliness and godly behavior. It's not about how you appear. And you know what? There are just as many guys in this room who worry about what they look like as there are women. We, we worry about how we appear. We worry about our clothes. We worry about our hair or the loss of it. We worry about all kinds of things because we worry about how we appear. And we don't worry enough about what we're like on the inside. But if you want to influence others, it's going to start with your heart and it's going to influence your character, which is then going to change your conduct because that's what it means to do good, according to 1 Peter as we study through it. So, again, every day, practical, rubber meets the road kind of issues are what he's dealing with. So, don't let your adorning be external. What does that mean? Don't focus on the outside. You're not going to win your husband to Christ by making external changes. You know, it's, it's like if, um, if, I, if I get into a, a tension with my wife, and we're kind of not at peace and we're at odds, here's what I do. Um, and I don't know why I do this, it's just kind of the way I'm wired. So if I feel like there's a tension and I don't want to have that conversation that I know we need to have to get the tension removed because it's going to be awkward, I do things for her. I empty the dishwasher, I clean the kitchen, I serve her, but the tension never goes away and it frustrates me. I'm like, I just emptied the dishwasher for you. Well, that, that's not what she wants. She wants to have a conversation, a very uncomfortable conversation I don't want to have. So then I'll, I'll do something else for her. And I let her know I did that something else for her, and it never seems to satisfy her because that's not what she wants. In this idea of externals, but yet I did this for you. I dressed this way for you. I, hey, I, I, I took care of the kids for you this weekend. I did the, no. She's looking for change within me, my heart, that's now going to drive my character and how I do my conduct. These women, just like women today, are getting a message that's contrary to what Peter's telling them. Because the world has always been, since the fall, has always been telling women and men, it's all external. It's all how you appear. It's all what you do not what drives what you do. It's not your heart. It's just totally externals. And Peter's going to say nothing could be further from the truth. So he talks about deeds. Now on the screen are some deeds. They're actually some things that are highly popular today. Weren't available back then, but you can get them today. And some of our wives... Some of our daughters, girlfriends, friends, and men have bought into this. Botox, liposuction, 
breast implants. Hopefully no man has done that. Working out, facelifts, tummy tucks, new clothes, dieting. These are so popular today, it's unbelievable. Matter of fact, listen to this. This is from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. Approximately 16 million cosmetic procedures were performed in 2014 here in the United States. Americans spent $12.9 billion on cosmetic procedures. I can't fathom $12.9 billion, but that's a lot of money. Females made up 92% of all cosmetic procedures, but the number of males is growing. Breast augmentation was the top cosmetic surgical procedure. 6.7 million people received Botox facial injections. Women between the ages of 40 and 54 make up the majority of cosmetic procedures. Now, why am I reading that? Why do I even want to bother that? Why would I even risk that, knowing that there are some women who listen to these tapes? Because this, to me, is what Peter's talking about. It's women, predominantly, 92%, are trying to change their external look in order to influence those around them, their husband their peers. They're trying to prolong their beauty. For whatever reason, our country, our society is obsessed with the external. And guys, here's my fear. Many of us are encouraging it. Many of us are actually paying for it. And this is not a diatribe against plastic surgery, guys. That's between you and the Lord. That's your wife and the Lord. But Here's what I am going to make a diatribe about is that at the end of the day, it's your wife's heart that matters. It's her inward character. Because I know this, even though these weren't available when Peter wrote this letter, if Peter were to walk in this room today and read that article, he would say, these are not the good deeds I'm talking about. This is like adorning your hair, jewelry, putting on a certain kind of dress in order to change the way you look to hopefully influence your husband or those around you. No, he says, change your heart. Change your conduct. This kind of conduct is incredibly damaging because it sends such a false message, especially to young girls, that this is how you're supposed to look and you're supposed to look this way for the rest of your life. Let's face it, guys. My wife is 58 years old. My wife is gorgeous to me, but my wife is aging and she's aging gracefully. And I love that about her. And again, I'm not condemning you if your wife has had Botox or your wife has had a tummy tuck or what. Again, that's between you and the Lord. But guys, where's her heart? What's her character? Do you think about that? He says, Based on good conduct, good behavior, godly behavior, he says, their husbands may be won without a word by that kind of conduct, not by externals. I have seen and had in my office couples who are at odds going through separation, and that wife has had all kinds of things done to her body to keep herself beautiful, and yet it has not saved her marriage. And that husband has paid for it, approved of it, wanted it, desired it, lusted after it, enjoyed it, but it's not saved their marriage because it's a heart issue at the end of the day. It's about internal conduct. 
So he says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. It's about what's in here. What's in here. So let's talk just to us for a second. Okay. Here's some questions for you. What would the women in your life say you value when it comes to them? If I could sit down with your wife, your daughter, what would she say you value about her? What do you say to your daughters, for instance? I have four of them, and I've been so guilty of this over the years. Honey, you look so pretty today. Honey, I love your hair like that. Honey, that that dress looks so pretty on you. Always external, always how they look. Is that what they would say? He values how, how I look. He values my externals. How about your wife? What do you tend to compliment about your wife, your daughters? What do you say to them? Honey, man, you look, boy, you look hot today. There's nothing wrong with saying that, but if that's all she ever hears, what does she convey or what do you convey to her? How I look is all you care about. When's the last time you asked your, your wife, hey, how, how are you doing spiritually? How are you, how you feeling? See, that's a, that's a dangerous question to ask a wife, isn't it? Because she's going to tell you. And part of you doesn't want to know. How are you feeling, hon? How much time do you have? Oh, I don't have any time at all. But go ahead and we'll get back together tonight. No, it's going to be, you're going to be there in the next three hours. Do you ask her those things? How often do you compliment her inner person? And honey, I really appreciate your um, sincerity. I really appreciate your compassion. I love the way you handle our kids so lovingly. I love the way you encourage me. When's the last time you complimented that? Is her time spent at the gym more important to you than her time spent in the Word? Because you like the results it produces? See, guys, this is, this is hard. Every one of us lo- loves to have a beautiful wife, an attractive wife, a thin wife, whatever your definition of a beautiful woman is, that's what you want. But do you really care about the inner being, the inner heart? Is your wife more a trophy than a vessel for God? You, you were given your wife by God for a reason. And God wants you to care for her, as we're going to see in verse 7. But what's driving her conduct? And here's the deal. You have a huge influence on what drives her conduct, her behavior. And if she is obsessed with the externals, a lot of that's coming from you. Yeah, it's coming from society, but you have a much greater influence over that than anybody else by complimenting, critiquing, caring about how she's doing spiritually. Because here's what you know, and here's what I know. Your wife can go buy a new dress, and she can put that dress on, and she can feel pretty, and she can get compliments. But if she is struggling with self-worth, that will not solve her problem. She will not feel beautiful forever. And that dress will go out of style. That dress will no longer fit at some period, point in time. And she will then think less of herself. And the only person who can really change that is you. Speaking into her life that you have more value than the way you look. My wife is growing old. Because I'm growing old. And you know what? I love her more today than I loved her the day I married her. Because I have seen her character grow and grow and grow deeper and deeper and deeper, even as she's grown older alongside me. That's what really matters. And it reminds me, it's Proverbs 31. 
Verse 30, charm is deceptive and beauty does not last, but a woman who fears the Lord will be greatly praised. That's what you should want. You want a wife, a woman who fears the Lord, who has a heart for the Lord, a desire for the Lord, because her beauty is going to fade away. The charm, the things that she puts on and all the things that make her look attractive are going to fade away. But the inner heart, that is imperishable, Peter says. It literally means beauty that lasts. Put on the imperishable. Those things, the character, the conduct, the goodly, godly behavior that will never change. It's immortal. That's literally the meaning of the word imperishable. It will last forever. You know, when you get to heaven, you're not going to care what your wife looks like. As a matter of fact, I believe the scriptures teach you're not going to be married to your wife when you get to heaven. There is no marrying or giving in marriage. And we're going to be okay with that. It's not like you're going to get up there and go, hey, wait, where's my wife? This, this is a disappointment. No, you're going to be brothers and sisters in Christ. But you're not going to be attracted to her based on outer appearance anymore because it's not going to be surfacy. It's not going to be outward. It's going to be inward. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. These bodies are dying and decaying. Your wife's body, your daughter's bodies are going to decay and die. They're going to get old. They're going to lose their beauty. It's what's inside that counts. And I really think that's Peter's main point here. Again, Proverbs 31, 10 through 12, an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the kind of wife you should want. An excellent wife, but her worth is more than jewels. And I really think that has to do with what she wears, what she looks like, what she puts on, how attractive she is. It's about the inner character of her heart. And yet, our world is telling our wives just the opposite. It's telling our daughters just the opposite, that it's your outward appearance that matters most. So you and I should want a wife who fears the Lord, not getting old. See, when your wife looks in the mirror and goes, oh, gosh, I, I look hideous, what should your response be? Let me give you a hint. It's not, boy, you do. It's, honey, man, you... You're beautiful to me. And it's not just the way you look. It's, it's your heart. It's your character. It's everything about you is beautiful. And you'll always be beautiful to me. That is what your wife wants to hear. Now, she'll say, she won't believe it because she knows you. But the more you tell her that and the more you affirm that in her, the more she'll realize that my worth is greater than what I wear, what I put on, how I look. I love the New Living Translation, who clothes herself, this is from Proverbs, who clothes herself with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. Actually, it's First Peter. She understands that it's, it's the inside that really counts. There's nothing wrong with your wife taking care of her body and working out. And um, I, have a, I do have a hard time with some of the surgical procedures that are popular today, but there's nothing wrong with beauty, but when beauty becomes the end all, we've totally missed the point. Guys, there's nothing wrong with you working out and being in good shape and taking care of your body because it does belong to God, but you need to be a good steward. But at the same time, do you care about what you're like on the inside? Because that's what's precious to God. That's what makes you beautiful to God, her beautiful to God. 
And he says, this is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They put their trust in God and accepted the authority of their husbands. They submitted again as to the Lord. And he uses these Old Testament characters and he points out Sarah and says, Sarah's an example. She submitted to Abraham's leadership. Think about Sarah. We studied her before. Sarah was living with Abraham, Abram at that time in Ur the Chaldees. God comes to him and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I want you to leave where you are, leave your family, take your wife, and I want you to leave and I'm going to send you somewhere. And he comes home one day and goes, hey, honey, we're leaving. Pack everything. She goes, what do you mean we're leaving? This is my home. This is my, my, my mom and dad live here. This is, no, what do you mean we're leaving? We're leaving. Pack everything. We're leaving. We're going. Where are we going? I don't know. Well, why are we going? Because God told me to. Who's God? I don't know. He just talked to me and he said, we're leaving. And he's going to make of us a great nation. And she willingly, as idiotic as that probably sounded to her, she willingly followed him. She submitted to him. And she traveled all those thousands of miles, and she made it to Canaan, not having a clue what they were going to do. They lived in tents. They never had a home. They were constantly moving. He tried to sell her off as, as his sister, and she almost got raped for it. And I mean, she, she followed this guy in so many ways, wondering, what, what am I doing? And yet she kept submitting to his leadership as to the Lord, trusting that, okay, God, I don't get it but I'm going to trust you all the way to Canaan. And she suffered all along the way beside him. And he made some really bad decisions, but she submitted. And Peter says, that's how you should live your life. Wife, if you've got a unsaved husband, go home and submit as to the Lord, trusting Lord that he knows what he's, what he's doing. And he uses Sarah as an example. And he says, you are her children, wives, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Interesting statement. You do good. There's that phrase again, do what's godly, do what's right, submit, and do not fear anything that is frightening. So do what is good and godly, but don't fear. See, some of these women were going to go back into situations that were frightening, that were scary. I don't know what he's going to do. He hates the fact that I'm going to the church. He hates the fact that I become a believer, but do not fear. Why? Because you can trust God. He's going to care for you. He's going to watch over you. So submit just as Sarah did. Sarah had fears. Sarah had concerns. Sarah didn't always know what was going to happen. But it boils down to submitting, doing the godly, the good thing, being respectful. And is, there's not a guy in the room who doesn't want a respectful wife, right? You want your wife to respect you. You want your wife to treat you with dignity. We want a wife who has pure conduct. Nobody wants an immoral wife, Nobody wants a wife that sleeps around, right? I don't think you do. If you do, we need to talk. But you want her to be morally pure. You would be appalled. You would be shocked. You would be angry if you found out your wife was having an affair, even just a mental affair with another man. We want these things, right? Well, that's when he gets talking to you. You want that? You want a morally pure wife? You want a godly wife? You want a good wife? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, this, this phrase, an understanding way, is important because I think what it, what it really means is something totally different than what it get, how it's gotten translated because here it literally means according to knowledge. Live with your wife according to knowledge. 
I don't think it means according to what you know about her. I think it means according to what you know God would have you do, because that's the whole context. What would God have you do? Knowledge of things lawful and unlawful for Christians is how it was used in his day and age, Peter's day and age. Live with your wife in a way that you know what God would deem right and wrong for you to do with your wife, how you should treat her, how, she, how you should live with her, how you should relate to her. What would God have you do? That's the point. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, this passage is really kind of weird because it says weaker vessel. And guess what it means, weaker vessel? It means that she's weaker, physically weaker, and most women are. That's the way God ordained it. That's the way God created it. But it has to do with assigning value to her as physically weaker, but also she's submitting to you and expecting you to care for her and lead her. And that submission puts her in a position of vulnerability, guys. And you need to lead her and assign value to her. And it literally means to portion out worth to her. That I value you more than me. I value your opinion more than my own. I consider your needs above my own, which is what the New Testament teaches you and I. She's the weaker vessel. Not, not because of any external worth or value. In other words, she's not weaker because she has less value. That, that's not what this is talking about. As a matter of fact, it's saying she submitted to you, treat her with even more value. Show her honor. It's not going to be based on how she looks, what kind of clothes she wears, that her breasts are the size you want them to be or she wants them to be or the world wants them to be. She wears the right kind of dress or she wears a short dress, a long dress, long hair, braids. I don't care what she wears or how she looks. That is not what establishes her value, Peter says. It's her heart. It's not based on her intelligence and strength. You treat her with honor because that's what God would have you do. And some of you may have wives who you think don't deserve honor. What would God tell you? Treat her with honor. What did he say about emperors? Honor the emperor. Who was the emperor? Nero. You may live with a wife who you think is worse than Nero. What would God have you do? Treat her with honor. Treat her with dignity. Treat her with respect. Based on what appears, he says, to be a deficit, they're weaker, physically weaker. But that's not a deficit. That's actually an asset. And a godly woman who knows how to submit, while that may appear weak to many, you as a husband know that's actually godly and good, and I'm going to reward her for that. I'm going to honor her for that. You have influence. We're made differently. We know that. We're, we have contrasting but complementary natures given to us by God, and we're to honor their distinctiveness, your wife's distinctiveness. And he says, view them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Why? So your prayers won't be hindered. This is the clincher, and this is how we're going to end it. To not treat your wife with dignity, honor, and respect is to not do good. It is ungodly. It is unholy. You catch that? To not treat your wife with dignity, honor, and respect is to not do good. When you badmouth your wife, when you demean your wife to someone else at work, when you say negative things about your wife to your wife or behind the back of your wife, you are ungodly. 
and you're not doing what God would have you do. And to not do what God deems good will hinder your prayer life. And you can pray and pray and pray till you're blue in the face, and God will not answer those prayers because you are not doing what he's called you to do. Honor your wife. Whether she's lost, whether she's saved, whether she's an idiot, whether she's obnoxious, whether she respects you, it doesn't matter because your job is to honor her. Because that's what God would have you do. Just like he said, honor the emperor, honor the governor, honor your boss, honor your wife. How much more should we honor our wives so your prayers will not get hindered? John tells us, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and what? Do his will. See, it doesn't do any good for you to go to church every Sunday and worship him, sing the songs, listen to the sermon. Maybe take notes in your sermon notes and then leave them on the pew. It doesn't matter if you do those things if you don't do his will. What is his will? That you do good. And in this context, you do good to your wife. So here's your uh, questions. Discuss areas where your faith intersects with the world and presents opportunities to do good. How could you glorify God better in those situations? Could be your work, could be friends, could be a lost neighbor. Where do those situations exist? What kind of influence do you think your faith is having on the lost in your life? Describe why. Describe why not. How come I'm not having an influence? And then what are some practical ways you can express your wife's true value or worth in Christ? You know, one of the things that I, that I do, I've done it for years. Every uh, Thursday morning when I get up to come here, um, I, my wife's asleep, so I write her a note. And I just... Honey, I love you, thinking about you, praying for you today. And it you know, it's, it's, takes me 30 seconds. It means the world to my wife. And the days I forget, I will get a call about 30 minutes from now when I'm back in my office and she goes, where's my note? I'm like, oh, gosh, I totally forgot. And she's gracious but she lets me know that means everything to me when you do that because it means you're thinking about me even at four in the morning as you get ready to go teach. Little things like that, writing her notes, encouraging her, talking about her heart, talking about her character. What are some ways you're going to encourage that this week? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you that you've placed us in this position. Many of us in this room are married. Many of us have wives um, who are godly and good and gracious and easy to love and easy to encourage. Some of us don't. And Father, we need to step it up and we need to honor them regardless of what they look like and regardless of how they act. We need to just honor them because it's what you've called us to do. There are men in this room who've lost their wives. And, and Father, this is a hard message to hear. I pray that you would come alongside them and that you would help them to understand that there are still women in their lives that they influence, granddaughters, daughters, Friends who they can encourage and they can value and, and lift up and find worth other than the way they look. Lord, I, I just pray that you would help us to be godly men, that our character would so influence the way we live in every relationship that we have. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and we pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun, guys.